0: This is the message of Stephen, part 6, and I have subtitled it, The Law. The Law. All right, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time, and then we'll get right into our study. Father God, we do thank you for this day you have given to us. Thank you for this good attendance and for women in this day and age who hunger and thirst for your word. Thank you, Lord. I pray that they will leave here having been satisfied by the bread of life. Thank you that we do still have this privilege to assemble together for the purpose of not only fellowshipping fellowshipping with one another, but um, to study your word. Thank you that we have the freedom yet to do that, and we do pray for this freedom, that it will continue to be possible for us to meet together. Lord, help us never to take that for granted. And may we pray for our nation faithfully because we are indeed in perilous times. I believe with all my heart we are in the end times and they are. everything is just happening so quickly. May we be not caught ashamed at your coming. May every one of us be ready, Lord, because it could be at any moment. We do say in our hearts, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, because this world is getting so wicked and so frightening and we would just rather be with you. And Lord, I pray for any of our loved ones who do not yet know you. That's the burden of our heart. And we do thank you that you have been long-suffering so that many more have come into your kingdom. And so we pray, Lord, that in these last days they would be frightened enough to come to you, that they would seek salvation and refuge in Jesus Christ, who alone gives eternal life. We thank you for him. We thank you for your word, which is alive and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword, and it does pierce, and it is amazing, and it is eternal, and we're so thankful that you gave it to us so we could know you. Now I just pray, Lord, that you would use your servant. May I say nothing that would be an offense. Uh, may all my words and thoughts uh, give you glory, and may all of our words and thoughts give, us, give you glory this morning. Whatever we're thinking, ha- help this to be an atmosphere in which your Holy Spirit can, can do his work, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this far into our study of Stephen's message, which is, as I said, I think, the sixth lesson. I never thought it would take us six. It's going to take us more to get through Acts chapter 7. But perhaps we should remind ourselves that it was given... Stephen gave this message in response to Caiaphas' question of verse 1 where he asked Stephen, are these things so? And the these things that he was referring to were the accusations made against Stephen which were that he had blasphemed God, he had blasphemed Mo- Moses, he spoke continuous blasphemy against the temple and against the law. And Stephen chose to give his defense against those charges by presenting a selective narration of Israel's history, in which he made it very clear, so far he's made it very clear, that his God was the sovereign, providential, covenant-keeping God of Abraham, and of all the patriarchs, and of Joseph, and Moses, and Joshua, and David, and Solomon, and all the prophets. His faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, the anointed one, did not at all alter or diminish his faith in God. Stephen's faith in Jesus as the Messiah actually strengthened his faith in God, which is what it does for us, too. Our faith in Jesus Christ, I hope it should strengthen our faith in God. It does. That's how it works. Well, Stephen and his fellow Christians, most of whom, if you remember, at this point, Most of the Christians were from the remnant of truly God-fearing Jews. And they had seen, and they had heard, and uh, they had recognized Jehovah God, who they truly knew, because these were God-fearing Jews. They really knew the God of the Bible. They recognized Jehovah God in the actions and in the words and in the person of his son Yeshua, they recognize Jehovah in Yeshua, right? Don't we recognize God in in Jesus? Because he came to reveal the Father to us. He said in John 6, 45, every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh to me. He also said to the Pharisees, if God were your Father, ye would love me because I proceeded forth and came from him, from God, from my father. That's in John 8, 42. Well, in verses 20 to 29a, Stephen had covered Moses' first 40 years of his life, which were spent in Egypt. And those 40 years ended with his rejection by his own brothers. And then in verses 29b to 36, he gave a quick synopsis of Moses' second 40 years, which were spent where? In Midian... And that 40 years ended with his divine commission which was given from the burning bush and then his subsequent deliverance of Israel from Egypt in what is known as the Exodus. Okay, And then in verse 37, very important, verse 37, Stephen reminded the Jews of Deuteronomy 18.15, a critical verse. Um, Genesis 3.15 should have... Big circle around it in your Bible or highlighted the first time God spoke about the coming Messiah, the seed of the woman. Also in your Bibles, you should have Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen circled. Very, very important prophecy. It is the most critical prophecy that Moses ever spoke. And it was about the coming Messiah and how he would be identifiable how Israel could identify him, how they could know besides his genealogical record. And so Stephen, quoting from Moses, said, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. He will come from Israel. And how, who, how will you identify him? He will be like unto me, Moses said. He'll be like me. And then he said, him shall ye hear. Now Stephen And his fellow Christians firmly believed, and they honored the inspired writings of Moses. Because when Jesus came, they realized he was the perfect fulfillment of that prophecy. Therefore... You know, they recognized Jesus fulfilled that prophecy, Deuteronomy 18.15. And therefore, what did they do? They did what Moses told them to do. When you recognize the one who's like unto me, what are you to do? You're to listen to him. And that's exactly what they did. They listened to Moses by listening to Jesus. To the Jews who had wanted to kill Jesus because he was always... Um, performing miracles on the Sabbath, and they said, you're breaking the Sabbath, and they wanted to kill him, and then they also wanted to kill him because he called God his father, and they said that was blasphemous. Well, here's what Jesus said to them. He said, do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses ye would have believed me. Why? Because he wrote of me. What specifically is he speaking of there? Specifically, Deuteronomy 18.15. He said, but if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? That's in John 5, verses 45 to 47. It dishonors Moses, but more importantly, it dishonors God to not believe what he inspired Moses to write. Well, as it was then, it is also still true today. Those who believe Moses' words about how to recognize the true Messiah, there's a lot of messiahs that have come and gone in the world. How do you recognize the true Messiah? Well, you believe Moses. And you will find that Jesus of Nazareth was not only amazingly like Moses, but everything else about him Also aligns with messianic scripture, all messianic scripture regarding the first coming. And of course, he's going to align also with all the scripture that has to do with his second coming. But if somebody will take just take an honest examination to just to to look at Jesus and in light of the scripture, they will discover if they're honest about it and sincere about it, they will discover that he fully qualifies, not only as Israel's long-awaited Messiah, but also as the Savior of the entire world. And then, if they will be honest to do that, and I challenge Jewish people today, I mean, we have several in our study on Tuesday. I don't think we have anybody Jewish here today, do we? Anybody Jewish? Part Jewish? We have two Jewish girls in our study up there, and they're born-again Christians. They're complete, you know, Hebrews, (laughs) and it's wonderful, but um, I would love to see many, many, many Jewish people coming to know the Lord, wouldn't you? Today, before the tribulation, if they would honestly evaluate, and I hope that they are in these last days as things are getting so frightening, but um, they will realize that he fulfills all the credentials, and then what are they to do? They're to do exactly what Moses said to do. They're to listen to him. And what did Jesus say? Here's just one verse he said. Verily, verily, which means of a truth of a truth. Amen, amen, listen to this. I say unto you, he that believeth in me hath everlasting life. John 6 47 so the question for the Jews of Stephen's audience which was that Sanhedrin council and the question for the Jews of the world today and the question really for everybody in the world today is this was Jesus like unto Moses well let's review some things and see if he was both were physically saved as young Hebrew boys from death edicts of evil rulers of the people of Israel. One was Pharaoh of Egypt and the other was Herod the Great. Both were provided an Egyptian refuge. Both were mighty in words and deeds. Christ, of course, exceedingly more mighty than Moses, but both were mighty in words and deeds. Both voluntarily relinquished riches and a kingly palace. Christ himself voluntarily relinquished heaven and they chose to suffer affliction instead with the people of God. Both were filled with deep compassion for the sufferings of their people, their kinsmen. Both were rejected by their own people on their first visit to deliver them. Both vanished from Israel, presumed dead, or at least in Moses' case, presumed at least gone forever. Never thought they'd see him again. The deliverance work of both men, Jesus and um, Moses, was accepted by who? His own refused it, but who readily accepted the deliverance work? Gentiles. Both received Gentile brides, predominantly Gentile bride. Now Moses married Zipporah, who was from the lineage of Abraham, and she did give to Moses seed That was part Jewish and part Gentile, right? So there's a picture there of the church. Now, another consideration that the council might have honestly examined, they didn't, but they they could have and they should have, is the correlation of Jesus with Israel's spring feasts. Remember that time we studied the seven feasts of Israel? There are four spring feasts and three fall feasts. Well, they couldn't examine the fall feasts because they haven't occurred yet. In Jesus's life that'll be a, you know his second coming but they could have examined the correlation of Jesus with Israel's spring feasts and those feasts were given by God through who Moses exactly <clears throat> surely those religious men I mean they studied their Old Testament surely they had observed this phenomenon. How he correlated with the spring feast. Even though they themselves, remember of the the one day of the whole year they they said we will not kill Jesus. We cannot kill him on what day? (laughs) The Passover. And that was in Matthew 26, verses 4 and 5. We can't kill him on the Passover. Too many people in town, they'll get mad at us and stone us to death. And yet that's the very day that Jesus died, right? On Passover day. How had that happened? Well, hadn't John the Baptist introduced Jesus to Israel back in John 1.29 as the Lamb of God? So wasn't it decreed on heaven's calendar that the Lamb of God would die on Passover day precisely at the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m., when they began to slaughter the Passover lambs in the temple? You know, the original Passover was given. It was a God given prophetic picture of the Messiah who would be a lamb. Remember, Abraham had said that to Isaac. When Isaac went with him to Mount Moriah and he looked around, he said, Well, here's the wood, here's the fire, but where's the lamb? What did Abraham say to his son? Right, Genesis 22 8, he said, My son, every word in this is so important. My son, God God will provide himself a lamb for the offering. Every word in that is just so. So, you know, they should have been looking for a lamb, a Passover lamb. And, of course, he would die on the Passover. That's when they killed the Passover lambs. The lamb would willingly give his own sinless blood for all firstborns whether Jewish or Gentile, and you know some of the Egyptians did leave in the Exodus with the Israelites. They did. It's in there. I've got it in your notes somewhere. It's in Exodus somewhere. I can't remember. 34 something. No, that might not be right, but it's in there. That a mixed group went out with them. If they would just trust what Moses said to apply the blood of the Lamb to the doorposts of the homes in the form of a cross, (laughs) then the, the angel of death would pass over all the firstborns. See, that's exactly what has to happen for us, isn't it? We're all firstborns. Born our first time from our mother's wombs. But we need to be born again, don't we? We need to be secondborns. And when we're secondborns, the angel of death will pass over us. So Jesus died on Passover, and then he rose from the dead on another God-given feast. The Feast of first fruits. Why was that? Well, because he is the first fruits of the resurrection. You know, resurrection is the true exodus from Egypt, from this world, right? Do you know, remember when Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he was talking to who? Moses and Elijah. Do you know what they were talking about? This is in Luke 9, 31. It says they were talking about his decease. But the actual word for decease is the word Exodus. They were talking about Jesus' exodus from this world, which is what resurrection is, isn't it? It's our exodus from this world. So he died on the, I mean, he rose on the Feast of First Fruits. Makes sense. <clears throat> According to Jewish calculations, the Feast of First Fruits is celebrated at the very time that Moses led Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. Very same time as the Feast of First Fruits. Well, now let's jump from the time of Exodus forward 1,500 years. <clears throat> the Jewish council members that Stephen is speaking to, they had known, very well known, that it was the day of firstfruits when the Roman guard came running to them with a very shocking ma- message that had to do with an earthquake, an angel whose face was like lightning, and what else? An empty tomb. And I think they also gave the report of the grave clothes lying inside of that tomb that looked like a hollowed-out cocoon. They knew, those council members, the same ones Stephen is talking to, they knew that that strange event had happened on the Day of Firstfruits, the Feast of Firstfruits. Now, do you not think that those Old Testament scholars had thought that it was very eerie that Jesus not only died on Passover, <clears throat> but that he was completely missing from his grave on the Feast of first fruits? Now, I don't know. I don't know if they thought about the fact that his sinless body... Remember, he said, who convicteth me of sin? Who convinces me... Of any sin and they couldn't say anything they never could say any sin in his life except he broke the Sabbath which he didn't Uh, he is the Lord of the Sabbath we could get into that but he didn't break the Sabbath he didn't break God's laws about the Sabbath he broke their man-made laws about the Sabbath and the only other thing they could ever accuse him of is blasphemy that he said he was God that God was his father and that wasn't a sin because it was true and so there his sinless body was laying in its tomb On the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, they knew that leaven in Scripture speaks of what? Sin. And they couldn't convince him of or convict him of any real sin. And there was, you know, why his body was laying in the tomb um, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Because he is the unleavened bread of life, isn't he? He is the heavenly manna. Manna was like hot and now crispy creams donuts you know but it didn't have leaven in it <laughs> but he is he is the unleavened bread of life sinless totally i don't think they thought about that but surely they couldn't have missed the fact that he died on passover and that he was missing on the feast of first fruits so <clears throat> i don't know maybe the jews had not met um, made that mental correlation between the events concerning Jesus and the first three spring feasts. But 50 days after first fruits was the fourth and final of the spring feasts, and what was it known as? The Feast of Weeks, or in Hebrew it's called Shavuot, One of the girls told me that up there in Sanford, um, meaning weeks. Or in Greek, it's Pentecostos, which means 50th. Because from first fruits, they start counting 50 days. And when they get to the 50th day, it's called, we call it Pentecost, right? The first Passover, we know, took place on the 14th of Nisan. Nisan was the first month of the Jewish religious calendar. Uh, <clears throat> the Israelites, we are told in Exodus 19, verse 1, arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai on the third day of the third month of the Jewish calendar. So they can, the Jewish people and you and I, we can do our calculations. They arrived, they left Egypt in the Exodus at the time of first fruits. They arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai some forty-seven days later. All right. And then through Moses, the Lord spoke to the he, he, he spoke to the people through Moses, and he told them that they were to wait there at the foot of Sinai for how many days? Here it is, I'm telling you, say it out <laughs> They were to wait there three days. Wait three days. And on the third day, the Lord promised the people that he would descend. He would come down onto that mountain, and he would speak to Moses in their presence so that they would believe him forever, it says. Exodus 19, verses 9 to 11. The Lord was going to descend, wait three days, and you know what he told them in the waiting period that they were to do? They were to cleanse themselves. They were to prepare themselves. It was to be a time of spiritual preparation to receive the holy presence of the Lord in his Shekinah glory. Um, But he was going to speak to the people in his Shekinah glory, through Moses, so that they would believe Moses forever. All right? Well, so after the third day of waiting and preparing themselves, suddenly in the morning hours of that third day, 50 days after the Exodus, there were thunders. I'm I'm just quoting now from Exodus 19. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke. (laughs) <laughs> Which is a funny way. I mean, it just looks like it's covered with smoke. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Is that reminding you of anything? It was, an, it was a very momentous event. And it is the day that the rabbis, not the Christians, but it's the day that the rabbis have declared to be, quote, unquote, the birthday of Judaism and the birthday of the giving of the law. Because after that, the Lord called Moses up to Mount Sinai, and there he gave him the law. Now, do you remember how Jesus, after his resurrection and before his ascension, he had likewise told his followers to wait for the promise of the Father, which would be what? The coming down, the descent of the Holy Spirit. Exactly, and the final proof, the whole, coming down to the final proof, the Holy Spirit, was that Jesus had really atoned. You know, he, had, he has, had ascended back up to his father. He had presented his blood at the altar of heaven, and it was accepted as our propitiation. And the proof of all that is the descent of the Holy Spirit. And he sent the Holy Spirit so that the people of God could believe who forever? Jesus forever. So that we could believe him Forever. And the believers did what Jesus told them to. They waited in the upper room. And what did they do in the upper room? Well, they prepared themselves. They cleansed themselves by studying the word of God, and they prepared themselves with prayer. And then precisely 50 days after his resurrection or his exodus from Egypt, (laughs) this world, in the early morning hours of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, Suddenly, it says in Acts 2, there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. Sounds so much like what happened at Mount Sinai, doesn't it? Some 1,500 years earlier. Now all of Jerusalem, including these same council members, they knew of the miracle that had taken place right there in Jerusalem on that day, on Pentecost, or Shavuot. 120 followers of Jesus had emerged from a house right there in the city, and they were speaking of the wondrous works of God, but, strangely, most of them were Galileans, but they were speaking all kinds of, previously unknown Gentile languages and even dialects. All Jerusalem knew about that amazing miracle on Pentecost. And from the time of that mysterious event, the sect of the Nazarene had increased mightily in power and in influence and in boldness and in souls, right? That very day, 3,000 souls were added to the 120. And then in his first sermon ever, Peter explained what had happened on that day. He said it was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in chapter 2 regarding the pouring out of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit had descended from heaven (coughs) to indwell, for the first time, to indwell believers in the Messiah. The church was born and the age of the new covenant began on that day. And isn't it most interesting that it was the very same day that the Jews declared to be the birthday of Judaism and the old covenant? You think that's just coincidence? No way. So if all the obvious similarities between Moses and Jesus were not enough to demonstrate that Jesus was the prophet like unto Moses, If all these things couldn't convince them, what possibly could? I don't know. The common people of Israel got it. They did. They recognized right away that Jesus was the prophet. They said that a number of times. Was that part of your homework to look those up? I can't remember. But um, after he fed the 5,000... They said, surely this is that prophet. They said it a number of times. They made their conclusion that he was the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15 merely based on his mighty miracles, his mighty deeds, and the power of his great words. They heard the Sermon on the Mount. You know, this has got to be the one Moses was speaking about. But the rulers saw all those same things, and yet they didn't get it, or did they? They got it, but they willfully, They willfully refused to acknowledge the connection. Why? Well, because for one thing, they envied him as their forefathers had envied Joseph and also Moses. Do you know it says in Psalm 106.16 that they also envied Moses? Even his brother and sister at one point in time envied him. Oh, the common, the common people got it, but the, the Jewish religious rulers didn't get it. They, did, they got it. Of course they got it. <laughs> they, they willfully refused because they were envious of Jesus and all his popularity with the people and his sinlessness and all the light that he was shedding on their darkness. And plus, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> if, if they did accept him as the one who fulfilled Moses' prophecy, it would mean one thing. What was that? What would that be? That they were to listen to him, right? They were to hark. If they identified him as that prophet, then the next thing Moses said is, hearken unto him, listen to him. And that was surely what they had not done. They had not done that at all. In fact, they had tried to make every effort to seal his lips forever. They had put him to death in order to silence him. But even that hadn't worked, because his followers were claiming that he had raised from the dead and his body was nowhere to be found if they could have found it they would have brought it forth to prove it that he hadn't resurrected but they could never find it because it wasn't there and even they had to admit that jesus's men were surely sounding a whole lot like him all over again remember they said that in acts 4:13. And now, not only did his men, it was like little Jesuses were multiplying everywhere. Not only did they sound just like him, but they were going about performing all kinds of signs and wonders in his name. And even this annoyingly brilliant man who was standing before them, named Stephen, even he had performed great wonders and miracles among the people that could not be denied. And to make matters worse, his face, remember his face? His face is glowing with the radiance of an angel. And half of these guys didn't even believe in angels. (laughs) But it was reminding them of the description that had been given in Scripture about the face of Moses when he had come down from receiving the law from God. And yet, although Stephen looked like an angel, His face looked like an angel, which means it was brilliant, like glowing. His face looked like that of an angel, but his words, his words were beginning to cut their hearts like a knife. He's far enough into his sermon that they're feeling that two-edged sword. It tells us in 754 that it cut them. His words cut them like a knife. And the irony of it all is that he was merely giving to them their own history. He never even spoke the name Jesus, did he? Until he's dying. He's merely giving to them their own history, and yet it's cutting them. You see, it's beginning to be far too evident that their rejection of Jesus was the continuation of a pattern that had been carried out ever since the days of their own patriarchs. Their forefathers had rejected every deliverer and every spokesman that God had ever sent them. So Stephen's message uh, bore the same appeal that Moses gave long ago. Stephen's message was basically the same. Him shall ye hear, except now the hymn had a name. And what was that name? Jesus shall ye hear. But Stephen never mentioned the name, but they got it. They knew exactly who he was talking about, even without having to say, Jesus shall ye hear. They knew who he was talking about. Now, if the Jews truly believed Moses, they would have concluded that the Old Testament was not the end of God's revelation. Further revelation would be coming. And who would it be coming from? The promised prophet, like unto Moses. And when that revelation came, they were to listen to it, and they were to believe it. In his very first public message, remember what the Lord Jesus said? He had made it very clear that he had not come to destroy the law, but to do what? To fulfill it. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17. He was telling them that he would fulfill all the law, That pictured the law pictured what a perfectly righteous person would do if if there could be such a person. They they would perfectly fulfill all the law. And now no one could ever do that. Right? Because everyone inherits the Adamic sin nature. But let's say if someone could do that, if someone could fulfill the law perfectly, would that someone not then prove? that they were deity? Yes, absolutely. Because none of us could e- can even fulfill the heart condition of the Ten Commandments, the true heart condition, much less all the moral law and the um, ceremonial law and the civil law. We don't have to do the civil and the ceremonial anymore from the Old Testament, but we still have the moral law, we still have the Ten Commandments, we can't even keep the first commandment with true heart condition, can we? You know, not putting any idols between us and God. We have to always watch out for that, because anything that comes between us and God is an idol, and it can be our own children, can it? It can be our home, our hobbies. So again, a person who could fulfill the law would prove that they were deity. So again, by way of the law, Moses and Messiah were brought together. Messiah would fulfill Torah, or law, that's what the Jews call the law, Torah, and his words would thereby supersede Torah, the law. Are you following me? Okay, so it was time, time now for Stephen to defend himself. He's defended himself against uh, blaspheming God and blaspheming Moses. Now it's time for him to move on and he's going to be, begin his defense, not only his defense, but he's defending all of us, all Christians, about the charge of having blasphemed the law. In verses 38 to 43, He shifts or shifted from demonstrating his respect for Moses to demonstrating his respect for the law. And that was an easy transition to make because history itself went from Moses' deliverance of Israel from Egypt to her time in the wilderness where she received the law from God through Moses. All right? Stephen's unstated argument was going to be that just as he never, ever would blaspheme a man chosen by God to save Israel from her bondage and who himself served as a picture of the coming Messiah, neither would he ever consider blaspheming the law that was given from God through the same man. Moses. So let's look now at Moses' third 40 years. Now he's 80 years old to 120 as he's leading some 2 million people, murmuring, complaining people around the wilderness. Wow. Let's look at verses 38 to 41, his third 40 years. Stephen says, this is he. Now remember, he had just said in verse 37, he gave that prediction about the prophet That would come like unto Moses. And then he says, Stephen says, This is he, this is Moses that was in the church, I'll explain that, in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai. Who was the angel that spoke to him in the burning bush on Mount Sinai? The angel of the Lord. That was the pre incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so this is Moses. He was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers our forefathers, who received the lively oracles or the living oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey. They wouldn't obey the law. But thrust him, who's the him? Moses. But thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. They didn't go back to Egypt, but their hearts did. Saying unto Aaron, that's Moses, brother. Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. In other words, we don't know what's happened to him. He's been gone forty. You know, he's been gone up there in the mountain a long time. We don't know what happened to him. So they go to Aaron and they say, <clears throat> uh, they made a they made a calf. Verse forty-one. They made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. I'm gonna stop right there for now. All right, so Stephen says here that the one who spoke the words that he had quoted from Deuteronomy 18, 15 in in verse 37 here of Acts 7, that the one who spoke those words is the very same one, same man who received the living oracles. From the angel, same angel that he had seen on Mount Sinai, which was the pre-incarnate Christ. Now oracles speaks of revelations, revelations uh, that are from God. So that means they're certain, they're infallible, they're unquestionably authoritative. um, Because who are they from? They're from God, the living God. So they're living oracles. They're just like the one who gave them. They're living. And as the Jews knew, it was while Moses was with Israel in the wilderness that he received the law from that same angel who had spoken to him out of the midst of the burning bush. That angel was a theophany. It was a pre-incarnate God, Jesus Christ. He was the one, Stephen says, who spoke to our fathers. He says that in verse 38. He, the angel from the burning bush, the one who gave the law on Mount Sinai, he's the one um, that spoke to their fathers. What does that mean? Well, it means that he is the same God of glory who first appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. It means that he was the one who was with Joseph from the pit to the pinnacle, right? Same one, pre-incarnate Christ. And he was also, as I said, the great I am who commissioned Moses from the midst of that burning bush. He is the one, Stephen says, he is the one who gave Moses the law. Who gave Moses the law? Jesus Christ, our savior. Stephen was again claiming not guilty to a charge that was brought against him. He affirmed his absolute faith in the law by declaring that God was its author and Moses was merely the recipient. Um, In verse 38, now the Greek word, it looks a little funny when you see it, the word church there in the wilderness, Moses was with the church in the wilderness, what? Well, that word in Greek is ekklesia, and it merely means called out ones. It is not referring to the church as we know it, the body of Christ made up of all born-again believers since the day of Pentecost and until the rapture. That's the church age, so not the same. Israel is not the same as the church. But he uses this word called-out ones because Israel was the people of God called out. First of all, in Abraham, she was called out of Mesopotamia, right? And then with Moses, she was called out of Egypt. The church wasn't born at this point in time. You know, when Israel was in the wilderness. Remember when Jesus walked the earth, he said to Peter, I will build my church. So even when Jesus was here on earth, his church hadn't been born yet. So the church was not in the wilderness. The church wasn't born until what day? We just talked about that. Church wasn't born until the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Lord's resurrection. Now Israel's exodus from Egypt. Israel's exodus from Egypt was to picture the new life in Christ, lived while still here on planet Earth. Israel had obeyed the word of God, given to her through Moses, When she did what he said, she obeyed Moses when she took the blood, you know, took the little Passover lambs, had them in their homes for three and a half days, four days, slit the throats on the fourth day, the 14th of Nisan, and then took the blood with hyssop and applied it to the doorposts of their homes. So she obeyed the word of God given to her through Moses. So Israel was thus under the blood, under the blood of the lambs that pictured her coming redeemer. Also by faith, Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea. And the apostle Paul, in typology of Christ, he's speaking of how all of this that happened in the Exodus is picturing Christ. Paul says that Israel was baptized unto Moses. When she passed through, that took faith to walk through. You know, there's walls of water on both sides. And the Egyptians are behind, well, it wouldn't take too much of faith. They're all behind the chase. <laughs> I'd be running across, but um, anyway, so it says, Paul says this, not me, that they were baptized unto Moses, just as we're baptized unto Christ. Moses is a picture of Christ. On Calvary, you know, throughout the Old Testament and still to this day, the Jewish people always look back in history and say the greatest miracle ever was the parting of the Red Sea. That's the miracle they always go back to. Well, Calvary was an even greater miracle than the parting of the Red Sea because what happened on Calvary was that Jesus parted you and I from death so that we can walk safely and securely from this life of bondage to sin and death, and we can walk right over, so to speak, on dry ground to the security of being eternally saved. Far greater miracle, wasn't it? First one was physical. The second one was spiritual. And the sea was closed back up. And all the Egyptians drowned, didn't they? The army of Pharaoh. And so when it closed back up, it was set as a barrier between Israel, the followers of Moses, and her former Egyptian bondage. That sea was a barrier between Israel, the followers of Moses, and their former bondage in Egypt. The king of Egypt received a crushing blow to his head. Not only was his own firstborn child dead from the angel of death, but his whole army was drowned. That was a crushing blow to Pharaoh. Our spiritual baptism in Christ um, is when we're born again. We're spiritually baptized in Christ, into the body. By who? The Spirit, right? And we give testimony to that having happened in our life, to being born again by the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we give testimony to that by public water baptism, don't we? Um, And that is what sets a barrier between us, the followers of Jesus, and those who are of Egypt. what is in the, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, there were three things that formed a barrier between Israel set free from her bondage to Egypt, the, the free Israel, and the Israel in bondage in Egypt. There were three things that formed a barrier between her. One we just talked about was the waters of the Red Sea when they closed back up that was a barrier. The other one we also talked about was the blood. When she put the blood on the doorposts of her, her home that separated her from Israel. I mean from uh, Egypt, her bondage in Egypt. And the third barrier between freed Israel and her bondage in Egypt was the Lord himself, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus. He came in his Shekinah glory, which looked like a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it tells us actually in Exodus 14:19, that he set up himself in that barrier. When the Egyptian army was coming, he came between Israel before she crossed the Red Sea. He came between her and put darkness, the cloud side of his Shekinah glory was on the Egyptians and all they could see was darkness, they were in the dark. But on Israel's side was the fire, the pillar of fire, so that she could see and could make her way across the Red Sea. So three barriers, the blood, the water, and Christ himself. Isn't that significant? Isn't that exactly what separates us today from the rest of the world? Well, for all the years in the wilderness, Moses was the mediator between God and Israel. He spoke to God for the people, and he spoke to the people for God. He also interceded to God in prayer on behalf of his people, oftentimes sparing them from the severe chastening hand of God. Who is the one mediator between the church and God? Jesus Christ, one mediator between God and man. He is also our high priest, whoever liveth to make intercession for those he has delivered from bondage. At one time, Moses even offered himself in place of his people. When he said to God these words, he said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, He's beseeching God, please forgive their sin. But if not, if you won't forgive them, Moses said, blot me out instead. Take me instead, I pray thee. Take me out of the book which thou hast written. That's the book of life. Moses suffered greatly for the sake of his people, didn't he? leading them around all those years. He suffered a lot for the sake of his people. He died and could not enter into the land of Israel um, because, as he said to the Israelites, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes. Likewise, was it not God's wrath poured out on Jesus when he became the curse of sin? Wasn't that done for our sakes? Did I say that right? Wasn't that done for our sake? Yeah, he took the wrath of God for us, just like Moses took the wrath of God for, for his people, the Israelites. So was he a prophet like unto Moses? Was the Lord Jesus a prophet like unto Moses? Absolutely, except exceedingly more infinite. You know, Moses was just a man, a sinner. But he was a picture of the one who was so much more than a man. He is the God-man. So Moses was Israel's miracle-working deliverer. We didn't even really talk about all the miracles he performed, you know, through God, of course, with all the plagues and everything. But he was a miracle-working deliverer. He was a God-given prophet. He was Israel's lawgiver. He was her good shepherd. He was her intercessor. He was her mediator. He was her judge, it says in Exodus 18.13. And he was one who took God's wrath for his people. And he was even unofficially called her king. And that's in uh, Deuteronomy three five. Moses is called a king. And then in Psalm 99.6, he's called a priest. Now, for years I have taught that there was no one besides Melchizedek who ever served in more than two offices, because they weren't allowed to be prophet, priest, and king. But you know what? That's not true. <laughs> I also said something when I, we were talking about Joseph. I said he's the most remarkable picture type of Christ in all the Bible. Well, the last several weeks, I have realized that he is a remarkable picture type of Christ, but there's one more remarkable. And who is it? Moses. I never really studied Moses' life like this before. Prophet, priest, and king. He's called those things. Um, and his, he did the work of a priest when he set up the whole tabernacle in the wilderness. You can read about it in Exodus 40. Furthermore, Scripture says that no man knows where the body of Moses lies. Now, he died up there on, was it Mount Nebo? But no man knows where his sepulcher is. Who buried Moses? God, the Lord buried Moses. No man knows where his body is buried why would that be why is that important well because he is a prophetic picture of Christ and Christ's body will never ever be found on earth will it because it isn't here it's in heaven his physical body resurrected and it's in heaven well, Moses was a prophet with whom God remained in continuous communion after the burning bush. To others, you know, God would appear at special times to communicate a particular message, like he did with Noah, and like he did with Abraham. He would appear, you know, and speak to him, the pre-incarnate Christ. Other times, he might communicate, this is before the word is written, he would communicate through dreams, or visions like he did with Jacob and like he did with Joseph. However, with Moses, the Lord was perpetually available. Moses could consult with the Lord whenever he needed to, and God would always answer him and direct him. (laughs) Moses did not need to see visions. Moses didn't need to fall asleep and have a dream in order to hear from God. He was always a prophet and not just on occasion a prophet. You see the difference? God said of Moses, he said, these are God's words in Numbers 12, with him, with Moses, I speak mouth to mouth. He also said in Exodus thirty-three eleven, 11, uh, or it says, the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Unlike all others, Pre, all other pre-Christ figures, Moses served as a revealer of the mind of God to the people of God. He was separated with the Lord on at least four different occasions, I counted. I went through the whole book of Exodus and I was looking. For, on four different occasions, um, he was separated with the Lord up there on the mount for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, where he neither ate nor drank. But he lived in great communion with God. And in those closeted communion sessions with the Lord, he received the law, he received the pattern, for the tabernacle, he received the, the feast days that Israel was to celebrate, the instructions all about the priesthood, he received these, uh, the, all the sacrifices that they were to offer, um, and the civil laws for Israel. And he also in those times would pray as an intercessor on behalf of his people. Moses uniquely, are you getting the picture? He uniquely pictured the prophet like unto him. Um, And yet I still must qualify that because Jesus in him was all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So Moses was just a picture, a man who was a picture of the one who is far. I mean, Jesus, more than Moses and all the prophets put together, reveals the mind of God because his mind is the mind of God. Well, in Stephen's summary of Moses' last 40 years, he went strongly on the offensive. He's getting stronger and stronger and going on the offense. And now he's really starting to put on the pressure. He reminds the council how the Israelites had so quickly turned their hearts back to Egypt and to the gods of Egypt once Moses ascended up to the mount to be seated with God and to receive from him the law. As I said before, Moses was out of sight And so very quickly they made the excuse to one another, we don't know where he is. Maybe he'll never come back. Maybe something happened to him up there and we'll never see him again. And so they readily dismissed the very one who had come and delivered them. Stephen's point was that this is exactly what Israel's religious rulers had done. The one who had come and done the work of deliverance for them was now also out of sight, because he had ascended much higher than Sinai. Where he had he ascended to? Up into heaven to sit down at the right hand of God. And he was, by his Spirit, through his church, revealing a new covenant to his new ecclesia, his new body of called out ones, the church. Once out of their sight, the Israelites in the wilderness turned from Moses to who? They turned from Moses to. Aaron, right, well, Aaron, they turned to Aaron, his brother, and they beseeched Aaron to give his permission to make gods of the dead religion of the Egyptians. And those gods were to go before them and lead them. I mean, it's just amazing that they could go back like this so quickly. Um, and so Aaron collected all their gold earrings. And he made a sacred bull or a calf, which was one of Egypt's many gods. So at the very time that Moses was on the mount receiving the law from the Lord, the Israelites with Aaron, which makes the sin even worse, doesn't it? With Aaron, they're making a golden calf. As the law is being spoken forth from the hand of the finger of God and the mouth of God, they're already breaking it. (laughs) down below. Doesn't that sound a lot like us? Mm. There was no greater insult, no greater insult to the Lord than for them to be making an Egyptian god, an idol out of gold, and to worship it as the one who had provided their deliverance. If you read the chapters in Exodus, that's exactly what they're doing, how quickly they digressed. From giving credit to God for leading them out of Israel, I mean Egypt, and then Moses, and then the cloud, the pillar, and now they're down to a golden calf. It's the golden calf who got us out of Egypt. How fast they digressed. Well, this insult of the highest degree to God, this is the highest degree of insult, is what Israel was again doing in Stephen's day. They had turned from the prophet, with a capital P, the prophet like unto Moses the Lord Jesus, and they were clinging to the works of Aaron's hand, which pictured the whole priestly system of Judaism. Aaron became the first high priest, didn't he? The Aaronic priesthood is the priesthood of the high priest. The Levitical priesthood is the regular priest. So, they quickly, Israel, at the time of Stephen, they had turned from the Lord Jesus, their true deliverer, and now they were, again, you know, looking at the work of Aaron's hands, which is Judaism. Once the Lord's deliverance work was finished on Calvary and he had ascended up to the mount to sit with his father, Judaism was a dead religion, just like Egypt, dead. Judaism was a real religion, It was the one true religion. But now after Christ did the delivering work on Calvary, it's a dead religion. Why is it dead? Because everything that it pictured has been fulfilled. It served its purpose, which was to point to the one who would come and fulfill it. The reality had come, the savior had come. And so the patterns, the shadows were no longer needed. We have talked about this many times. But the hearts of Israel's leadership were focused on this world, on Egypt, weren't they? That Sanhedrin, I mean, they loved this world. They really did. They loved their positions, and they loved their power, and they loved their, their prestige, and they loved their religion. They rejoiced in the works of their own hands, is how Stephen said. They were only too glad to be the errands of their day the ones to whom the people looked for direction and for favor and for religion. You see, they collected the gold from their people and they had made Judaism their golden calf. They did not worship God, did they? They thought they worshiped God, but they were really worshiping a God of their own making. What Stephen had just spoken to Israel's leaders, which was simply their true history, contradicted their prideful claims that they were the keepers of God's law. They were so proud about being the people who received the law from God and being the only people on the earth who obeyed it. But what he had just told them contradicted that because history showed otherwise. History showed that even before the law was delivered to them, they had broken it. Um, They not only uh, rejected it, (laughs) they broke it. In fact, Stephen went on to say that Israel's tendency for idolatry existed from the very time of her wandering in the wilderness all the way to her captivity in Babylon. He goes on to say there her whole history became an endless issue of idolatry. And that's what he says in verses 42 and 43. So let's look at those last two verses. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, and that's Amos, by the way, Stephen is going to quote from Amos. O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, figures which he made to worship them and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Stephen was quoting from Amos chapter 5, where God had said, in effect, God said to Israel, it wasn't to me that you offered all those beasts, you know, those slain beasts and the offerings for 40 years in the wilderness. It wasn't to me you were giving those offerings. You carried with you the tabernacle of Moloch, And you carried with you your worship of of heaven with the star of your god Remphan and the figures that you make with your own hands in order to worship them. So I'm going to carry you away to Babylon. Now make sure you read your notes because I talk about how Amos actually said Damascus, but Stephen purposely extended to Babylon because not only was the northern king kingdom carried into captivity because of their idolatry but so too was the southern kingdom carried into captivity to babylon because of their idolatry so stephen extended the judgment of god to the whole nation <clears throat> now the idolatrous worship of israel from her time in egypt to her captivity in babylon summed up her continuous rejection of the law so you see what stephen's doing He's saying I'm not the one, the Christians aren't the one who blaspheme the law. You are, and you always have your whole history since Moses was up there getting it. You were already breaking it and blaspheming it with your, your other gods. How did the law begin? What's the very first commandment of the law? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And that's what they were doing. So God gave them up. Uh Uh-oh. That's a dangerous position to be in, isn't it? God gave them up. Eventually, we know, the worship of the golden calf became the official religion of the northern kingdom under King Jeroboam. No wonder God had to carry her off by the Assyrians. Over time the Jewish people supplemented the worship of the golden calf with the many false gods of the Canaanites and other heathen people. Now, Moloch is specifically, specially mentioned by Stephen, and probably he said it with great anger when he said, yea, you even took up the tabernacle of Moloch. I think he said it with passion and anger, righteous anger, because Moloch Moloch was a horrible, horrific, satanically inspired, well, they're all satanically inspired gods, but this one was especially wicked. This was uh, a god of the Ammonites. Worshiping Moloch involved child sacrifices where they would actually take their firstborn child and throw the child into the fires of Moloch. That is the most wicked and most unnatural idolatry of all. Isn't it? Offering of one's own children. That's why America is under the judgment of God today. 57 million babies thrown into the fires of Moloch. And the worship of Remphan, that was the result of the growing influence of the Assyrians. It involved the worship of the stars and the planets. And they think that the the god Remphan was actually the worship of Saturn because in the Persian language and in the Syrian language, Remphan is actually their word for Saturn. So they worshiped the stars and the moon and everything that they could see except God. So Stephen had been... Condemned, he himself had been condemned for speaking continuous blasphemy against the law, but it was the members of Israel's high court who broke the law, just as their forefathers had done their entire history. They may not have been killing their own sons at that time, as some of their forefathers had done in the sacrifices to Moloch, but they had done something even worse than that. They had killed God's son. And in killing God's son, they blasphemed the entire scripture. Not just the law, but the prophets, everything. Moses, the law, the prophets. They blasphemed the entire Old Testament scripture, didn't they? Let's pray. Father, we just are again so amazed at your word. Every week as I delve into it i just learned so much more and i just can't praise you enough for how infinite and how rich and how deep it is but yet at the same time i'm thinking and concerned about our world our nation the whole world lieth in wickedness but our nation is going downhill so fast a spiral downhill and i just pray for our country father yes i am patriotic and i love america And I just pray we could somehow have a revival that Christians everywhere would speak up and speak out. And that we would beware, as John said, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Oh, Father, may we keep ourselves from putting anything between you and us. Anything. We know that there are many deceivers that are entered into this world. Many, many deceivers. So may we keep ourselves pure by staying in your word, being washed with the water of the word continuously so that we may not be found ashamed at your coming. And we close by saying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We love you and we pray in your name. Amen. God bless you.